So today we're taking up the book of Hebrews. We'll spend every week this fall essentially in the book. We'll take a break for Christmas. We'll finish it in the new year. The most important thing that you need to know about Hebrews is the first thing that you see in your listening guide. And I would love for you to pull it out, open up your Bible, write some things down. This message serves as an introductory message for the entire book. Hebrews is written to Jewish Jesus followers under pressure to revert. They had been converted from Judaism to the way of Jesus. But now they were experiencing pressure to renounce their faith. So the heartbeat of this book of Hebrews is the endurance of faith. And when you think about their moment, you understand why they would need endurance and why they would be experiencing this pressure because their decision to follow Jesus didn't just occur in a vacuum. It was a strong decision. In fact, it was a decision against their families. If you asked me to trace my family line today and draw my family tree, it would be a very short tree. I can just go back to my great-great-grandfather who I know came from New Zealand to America for Chicago's World Fair and then never went back to New Zealand, stayed. But that's about as far back as I personally can go. But if you asked one of these first century Jewish Christians their family tree, it would be a huge tree. They could trace that line back generation after generation after generation after generation from the pages of the New Testament all the way into the pages of the Old Testament. And all along that family line and in that family tree, they had one faith. The Jewish faith. And now they have decided to follow Jesus. So this is not just a decision for Jesus. It is a decision against their families. It was also a decision against power. Power was centralized nationally in Jerusalem among a small group of people known as the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin were a group of men responsible for making national decisions for Israel and representing Israel to the Roman Empire. Locally, power was rooted in the synagogue because the synagogue and the local village was more than just a place of worship. It was the town hall. It was the school. It was the place that you would celebrate. It was the heart of the local village. And in that synagogue, they practiced Judaism and not Christianity. This is where the power lied. And so to choose against the synagogue and against the Sanhedrin was a decision against power. It was also a decision against the status quo. See, God had promised a savior to Israel. And for years, Israel looked and anticipated that Messiah. But eventually, they got comfortable with the anticipating. It just became another thing that they did. They looked forward to a savior God would send, but they were so comfortable in looking That they missed the one that he sent. Jesus is still a threat to all three of these things. Your family. Power. The status quo. The pressure we experience here in America in 2017 is different than the experience that they were having. I doubt very few of us, probably none of us, are going to experience pressure this week to renounce our faith in Jesus. One of my favorite things to do is to spend the night in a hotel without my kids. 
no offense to them. I guess it is a little offense to them, but <laughs> if you're a parent of a young, uh, a young kid, you know it's not any fun to stay in a hotel with them because they wake up early. And they have no sense of when to sleep in or when to wake up early. They just, it's always early. It doesn't matter whether it's a school day and a work day or uh, a vacation day or a summer day or a weekend. They are no respecter of days. They just wake up early. So to spend the night in a hotel without your kids is a beautiful thing because you don't have to set your alarm. And then you put that little thing on the door outside. Do not disturb. There's not a better feeling as a parent. Probably sending them off to college is like, number one, right under that, putting up the do not disturb sign. I think that's the pressure that we experience here in America in 2017 as followers of Jesus. Do not disturb. All of our neighbors have that sign on their door. Listen, what faith you have in your house is great. More power to you. I'm sure it makes you a better person, but don't let what you do in your house disturb what's happening in my house. Every business has that. If you want to personally be a Christian, that's great. Just don't let it disturb what we're trying to do here. And before we get too judgy, most of us are trying to build a genuine faith that does not disturb our own lives. That's real and meaningful, but doesn't disturb the way that I spend money. It doesn't disturb the way that I talk. It doesn't disturb the things that I watch. It doesn't disturb the, the way that I treat people. We all want that do not disturb. That's the pressure we are under. And endurance matters. Because the stakes are high with endurance. First, we'll see in Hebrews that our eternal salvation and endurance are tied together. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 39 says, But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. He says we're not Christians who follow Jesus and then we feel the pressure and we shrink back and are destroyed, meaning we are not eternally saved. But we are of those who have faith and preserve our souls. So to have genuine faith is to not shrink back. The stakes are also high because of the glory of God. John chapter 15, Jesus says in verse 8, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. In the same chapter, Jesus talks about a branch with its vines. And that tree would yield its fruit, and then it would go dormant, then it would yield its fruit, and then it would go dormant, then it would yield its fruit, and then it would go dormant. So when Jesus talks about bearing fruit, that God is glorified in our bearing fruit, he's not talking about just one season. That's why we're not measuring, did I have a really good spiritual week? How was my decade? This is how God is glorified. So the stakes are high with our endurance. They're also high because we want to make a difference in this world. We want to matter. We want to be agents of change in Jesus' name. Early in my ministry, I was 
working at a church, and that summer the teenagers were going to Florida to do a mission project. A hurricane had come through a little town in Florida, and they were doing relief work. Specifically, they were fixing roofs that had been damaged uh, to families who couldn't afford to fix them themselves. And so the pastor who was responsible for those teenagers got married and went on his honeymoon instead of going on this trip. And so I was nominated to lead the teenagers down to Florida. And I'll be honest with you, my version of leadership on the way down there was going to be from the air conditioning. Uh, They were going to be all over this little town working on projects and I was going to be in a car and would uh, show up, step out of the air conditioning, shake hands, kiss babies, encourage the team, get back into the air conditioning, drive across town, get out to a another crew, shake hands, kiss babies, encourage the team, you know, maybe stop for a long lunch in between because I need sustenance because I'm working so hard. But when the week actually started, it was clear there was only one way to lead, and that was with sweat. That was to be up on the roof. The truth is, there's not anything meaningful we want to happen in this life that does not require sweat. Anything that comes easy goes just as easily. Everything that matters requires endurance. So if you do want to make a difference with your life in Jesus' name in this world, if you do want somebody to be different because of your life, you can't just string together a few important days. It's going to take endurance. So if endurance is necessary and there's much at stake, how do we build it? I don't know if you've ever wondered why Kenyans are so good at marathons. I was reading an article in Runner's World magazine this week, which is hilarious because I don't run. (laughs) It was talking about why they're so great. For a long time, they thought it was because when they were children, they had to walk vast distances to go to school or to eat, so the average Kenyan child was walking seven miles a day and they thought well this is giving them a huge head start especially compared to Americans where our kids are walking from the refrigerator to their video game console and back to the refrigerator and that's it but the more they studied they realized that there was a common denominator among world-class marathoners that actually went beyond Kenya and Ethiopia and applied to almost every champion their body mass index was below a certain number. Your body mass index is the ratio of how tall you are versus how much you weigh. And so for every world-class marathoners, they were all below that body mass index. And it just so happened that Kenyans are born predisposed to have a very low body mass index because they're tall and their frame is narrow. Essentially, they were born to be world-class marathoners. And a lot of Jesus followers think that. Listen, I'd love to be the kind of person who endures reading the scripture every single day. I would love to be that kind of person. I'm just not. There are those kinds of people. They're called pastors. But that's not me. I wasn't born to be a pastor. There are people who look at their neighbors through a gospel lens and pray for them and invite them over build relationships, try to influence them towards the kingdom of God. Those people are called missionaries. I wasn't born to be a missionary. The same 
reason most of us won't be ever uh, be world-class marathoners is the same reason most of us are not that worried about enduring because maybe we're just not born to be those kinds of people. But Hebrews tells us it's much simpler than that. Chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Look at these words again. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. If we want to build endurance, Hebrews is clear, we look to Jesus. And in this book, when we look to Jesus, what do we see? Three things in your listening guide. Number one, we look to Jesus and see who he is. Chapter one, Jesus is greater than the angels. Chapter three, Jesus is greater than Moses in the Old Testament law, which was maybe the most precious thing that the Jewish people had. Chapter 7, Jesus is holy. It says that he's set apart from regular people like you and I, that he is unstained by this world. Later in chapter 7, it says that he's higher than creation. There's no comparison between the Grand Canyon and the Son of God. In chapter 4 and chapter 10, Jesus is known as the great high priest. This is a very common theme in Hebrews, Jesus as our priest. Speaking of that, when we look to Jesus, we not only see who he is, but we see what he's done. As I mentioned, it mentions him as priest, the greatest of all priests, consistently in this book. And it references consistently what's known as the tabernacle. It was the tented temple that God prescribed for his people in the book of Exodus. Because God was doing something new when he rescued his Israelite people out of slavery in Egypt. Because up until that time in the scripture, God had only interacted with individuals. Adam, Eve, Cain, Abel, Noah, Enoch, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses. But now God has said he's going to live and dwell among an entire nation of people. So he makes a covenant with them. He says, you will be my people and I will be your God. This is what I will do for you. Do you accept these terms? And they did accept the terms and the terms came with instructions. Some of the instructions were moral. We still follow those instructions. Some of them were ceremonial and some of the instructions were to build to build this tabernacle. In the middle of God's people was this curtained off area that you can see on the screen. Inside the fence was a tent. In the courtyard, when you first entered in, there was an altar. And on that altar, there would be sacrifices, lambs and bulls. Because as we'll see in the book of Hebrews, from the very beginning, God has tied forgiveness and blood together. Just past the altar was a basin where the priests would wash themselves. They washed themselves in humility, just as God had instructed them. 
Because God was holy. He was on fire with purity. There is no one like him. And these priests were getting ready to minister in the presence of God. And they were normal, just like you and I. So they would wash themselves. Not because the actual washing somehow washed their insides clean. But as a sign of respect and humility, I know that there is something different between God and me. I know that we are not friends in the way that you and I would be friends. God, you are holy and I am regular. So I clean myself in this way that you prescribed. They would enter into the tent. On the right side, once they were in the tent, was a table that had bread on it. Twelve loaves of bread, in fact, representing the twelve different tribes of Israel. And there was always bread on that table, a fresh set every single day. Immediately across from the table of bread was a lampstand. And God had instructed that that lampstand would never be put out. It would always be burning because he would never leave his people. He would never go dark on them. And the eternal light of the tabernacle would always burn because of that. A little bit further into the tent was an altar of incense where they would burn incense as a fragrant aroma to God. Later on in the scriptures, our prayers are known as that fragrant incense. Then there was a curtain. On the other side of the curtain was the Ark of the Covenant. This was known as the Holy of Holies. Because God had said, this is ground zero for my presence on earth. This is my earthly throne. And God commonly filled up that room with his cloud and his smoke. And it was so holy that only one person designated could go in And that only once a year. Every single day, these things were happening. Every day, all day, animals were being sacrificed for the forgiveness of sins. Every day, priests were cleaning themselves in the basin. Every day, bread was put on the table. Every day, the oil was replaced in the lamp. Every day, the incense was made fresh so that that aroma was always going to God. Why? Because God was living with people. I mean, look at the layout. You have the altar, you have the basin, you have the lamp, the table, the incense. God prescribed it just this way. He had them build the furniture with specific instructions. He had them place the furniture inside exactly where he said. All day long, these things are being used so that God can dwell among people and Because it pointed to something better. Look at the shape those things make. God is the one who designed this. Foreshadowing of the better sacrifice that was to come. Because the one thing we learn from Hebrews is that Jesus is both the priest and the sacrifice. I mean, look at the scriptures in Hebrews that talk about these things. It says that Jesus is the forerunner for us behind the curtain. Only one person could go behind the curtain one day a year, but Jesus has gone back there for us and ripped the curtain down. Now we can dwell with God because of him. He offered up himself once for all, chapter seven says. The priests had to do this every single day over and over and over and over again, but one sacrifice from Jesus was more than enough. He put away sin when he sacrificed himself. Sin no longer has victory over us. He sanctified us through his own blood. We don't have to wash ourselves so that we can be clean before God. Jesus' blood has done that for us. And he mediated a new covenant, a new agreement with God. One that's not based on ceremony, but on grace. It comes from the cross. This is what he has done. 
But we also look to him and see what he's still doing in the book of Hebrews. First, he sympathizes with us. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. One of the most powerful things that you can do for someone, that you can give someone, is to identify with them. To know what it is to be them. To think of it from their perspective. I think that's what prejudice is. It's the opposite of that. We never see it from this certain kind of person's perspective. We never take their side. We never identify with them. If anyone could be prejudiced against us, it was Jesus. As we've mentioned in chapter 7, he was set apart from regular people like us. Where you and I have been stained by sin, he lived unstained. If anyone could look down and take the other side, it was Jesus. But he didn't. He walked where we've walked. He was tempted in the same ways that you and I were tempted. So he has sympathy for us. He identifies with us. He continues to do this. And because of that, he intercedes for us. It says in chapter 7, verse 25, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. We mentioned in Hebrews chapter 12 already that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God. This is where he is right now. So if you're wondering where Jesus is, that's where he is. And it says he speaks up for you from there. So when you struggle, he speaks up for you. When you have requests, he speaks up for you. When you're strained, he speaks up. And he doesn't have to mail his advocacy. He doesn't have to send a courier. He sits right next to God. And he continues to not remember our sin. Chapter 10, verse 17. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. It's not that he can't remember. It's not like he forgot on accident. It means that he doesn't remember. He chooses not to remember, meaning he chooses not to hold our sin against us. I think if it were you and I, and it was our job to speak up for somebody, we would speak up with the intensity of how good they had been to us. But Jesus doesn't do that. When you send a request via prayer, he doesn't say, well, you know, I would speak up for them, but uh, I saw what they said. I heard what they did. I saw what they did. So I'm going to not speak up this time. I'm going to wait to speak up next time. I'm going to punish them a little bit. They haven't read the Bible in who knows how long. And so when they start reading that again, I'll start speaking up again. Jesus doesn't do that because he doesn't remember our sins, meaning he doesn't count them against us. This is what he continues to do. We look to him just how we get endurance. We see who he is. We see what he's done, what he continues to do. And the great news is, 
we don't have to have endurance forever. There is a finish line. This is what it says in chapter 13, verse 14. For we have no lasting city here, but we seek the city that is to come. This is the finish line. There is a destination for all of this endurance. And we're going to spend the next few months learning about this city. Why don't you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word. Jesus, we thank you that you have spoken up for us. We thank you that you are the priest and the sacrifice. We thank you for who you are. We pray that what we've done today in your presence and in the presence of one another will continue to give us the strength to endure any pressure that we're feeling as your followers. We do not want to shrink back, but press ahead to the city that is to come. We ask this in Jesus' name.